frankly, like PLG has become trendy, but it's not right for everyone. And the challenges of moving to a PLG motion are actually like much bigger than people maybe anticipate. Um, it's not launching a freemium product or a free trial and then calling it a day. Like you're looking at realistically 18 months of work and significant investment uh, plus cultural changes across the company. CAC will probably increase in the short term as will R&D investments. Uh, it's something where I think that companies, if they can really commit to it um, and they have the right opportunity, they can see great results. But it's, you know, it is a, a long term sort of challenge. And uh, and it's something that I would say, if you're looking for something that's going to help you grow faster in the next quarter, your PLG initiative will probably not be that thing. Welcome to the June podcast. I'm Enzo, one of June co-founders, and my goal here is to help you get better at crafting great products and getting more people to experience them. In this podcast, you'll hear short interviews of product and growth leaders who share tips on how to launch and grow your product. Enjoy the show. Hi, Kyle, and welcome to the June podcast. So you're a PLG guru. You are an operating partner at OpenView, where you help the portfolio companies fuel the growth and become market leaders. Prior to OpenView, you worked at a consulting firm. You are also a writer. You have a bi-weekly Substack newsletter, which is probably the most known around PLG. You write about PLG, but not only, also pricing, packaging, go-to-market strategies, benchmarks, and any kind of way a VC can be value-added. A quick word about your fund, OpiumView. It's a Boston-based growth fund, which provides teams with dedicated teams to actually address their needs. Is there anything missing from my uh, description about you or about, about OpenView? Hmm. Well, as for OpenView, uh, it might be helpful to, to clarify, and this maybe even helps clarify how I got into the product like growth uh, movement. Uh, so product like growth isn't just something that like OpenView is famous kind of for its focus on. Uh, my colleague Blake coined the term product like growth. Uh, so he was looking at trends in, in what he was seeing in the software landscape, both in terms of his investment and that just the companies that were breaking through. Uh, and in 2016, he came across, you know, this term, uh, product like growth and started using it. And we, then we started really defining a framework, a set of best practices, um, and wrote a lot of content for, how, for what is this thing and how do you do it well? Uh, and that's how I got into product like growth myself. It's just joining OpenView in 2016 that year and then being a thought partner with Blake and really defining this and then make it, and then popularizing it in the community. So it was a lonely journey. I don't think that folks probably have heard product like growth maybe until like the last couple of years. Uh, so yeah, you can tell it took a while to get where we are now, but it's, um, it's been a fun journey. Do you remember when the cliff happened, when you switched from some basic writings about PLG and to the moment where, you know, PLG became a little bit your thing and of course, Blake things and open views things. Well, the, so it, it's been a series of things, right? So in, I think it was 2017 West Bush, uh, launched his product-led institute and started writing a lot more about product-led growth. 
And then I think it was around then we started seeing software vendors like Amplitude uh, or AppQs start to even use terms like product-led um, or have focuses on product-led companies as part of some of their, their external marketing. And so that's sort of like, all right, you know, we're seeing, you know, some signs that we're not the only ones talking about this, writing about this. Uh, it wasn't until maybe our 2019 PLG Summit uh, in San Francisco, uh, which got about 600 people and a really great roster of speakers that there was like a viral moment, right, of like, really great speakers that were the who's who of, of software growth, all talking about PLG and their strategy and just a great group of people that are in, in, in attendance there uh, who helped amplify that event. So that became one of the big just rallying cries for this kind of new model. And then coming out of that event, there was a ton of, of kind of PLG innovation that happened, but that was, that was probably one of the biggest clips. And then from a, external adoption standpoint, you really saw a lot of a lot of people sort of thinking about it and writing about it in 2020 post-COVID because PLG went from this thing that was like, oh, this would be a really interesting growth model for us to explore to how do we launch a PLG strategy now if we don't already have one? Yeah, yeah. I actually had exactly the same journey. I felt like, you know, it was just some kind of term and then become just massive and just unavoidable. How, how does a person like you end up writing uh, about PLG in a VC firm? Yeah, I don't have a, I don't know if there's a conventional background for it, but if there is, I don't have that background. Uh, so I, I spent my beginning part of my career uh, at Simon Kucher, which is the largest consulting firm working on monetization. And I was in a tech practice working with software businesses as well as media and information businesses on monetizing the product. So got a lot of exposure to things like, you know, freemium products, free trial products, usage-based pricing, um, self-service versus you know, sales-driven monetization strategies. But my focus was understanding the value that products delivered and then figuring out the best ways to monetize or capture that value. And, uh, it was a really great, really great experience. I mean, Simon Kucher is a fantastic firm uh, for folks that have worked with it. You know, you probably experienced the the goodness there. Uh, but that was the job that I had right out of undergrad, and I was on the partner track, right. And I was I was sort of thinking, is this what I want to do for my career uh, full time? You know, or do I want to actually try something new? So looking to get more into the operating side of things and and work also with smaller companies. Uh, and that's where this VC opportunity at OpenView came up, where it was a kind of a best of both worlds. I could leverage a lot of the experiences I had working across a lot of different companies and project-based and advising work, but then work more in-house uh, and work with specifically with startups. So it was right place at the right time. Uh, how do you make sure this value added happens, right? Because it's... You know, on the paper, it seems like very easy. Like we are going to dedicate people to some topics or to some startups, but like in the day-to-day, -day, how does it look like in practice? Yeah, well, we're, we are very intentional as a firm. And so at, like as a background, I lead our growth teams and our marketing teams uh, at OpenView, but we also have eight folks that work with a portfolio around hiring, both at the executive and at the individual contributor level. We've got an executive network team and a corporate development team. Like we've got a bunch of different teams that work with the portfolio. In mine, we like to be the first resource that a portfolio founder or someone on the leadership team calls when they've got a strategic challenge that's 
uh, stopping them from growing as fast as, as they'd like. And then we get on the phone with them and see, hey, is there someone in our network that has really fantastic expertise here that we should introduce them to? Is this the full-time hire that they need in their business? And we can help them scope out that role and then work with our talent team to bring in someone in the or is there actually like a consulting style project that we can take on with them? And if it's the latter, we will go do four to six week long bespoke consulting projects, the kind of the experience you'd get at like a Simon Kucher or McKinsey, but downscale to uh, the kind of needs and timelines of a much earlier stage company. Uh, and so in, in practice, day-to-day looks like you're generally supporting one to two companies pretty deeply in those uh, kind of bigger project-based work. And then a lot of air traffic control between our portfolio companies and then the resources that we can get them access to. Uh, so a lot of like, you know, if I look look at my calendar, it's a lot of 30-minute meetings with different people on, on a variety of subjects, but then trying to carve out focus time. Uh, and then in my... Kind of like spare time. Um, I don't know if there's any such thing as spare time, but like I love taking those conversations and what I'm being asked about by the portfolio or by uh, folks in our network and turning that into content that can be shared externally. So if I keep getting asked about something, the content is a way for me to get smart on it. So I have a good answer to give them and, and someone to introduce them to. Uh, but it's also like, hey, if, if multiple people are asking me this, this is probably a question that a lot of people have. Let's go explore this further. Do you have any kind of framework yeah. that you use to, to you know, prioritize your, your topics beside that it comes many times? <laughs> the yeah, the framework around content. So honestly, not really. The biggest approach that I have is uh, I like call it a test and learn style approach. So I will test ideas generally on LinkedIn uh, that are kernels of an idea or like if I have a take on something, I will throw it out there and see, hey, is there a lot of discussion that's happening around this? Are people really interested in it? And also, like, people slide into my DMs or drop into the comments with really fascinating ideas. And so I'll use LinkedIn to source experts for folks that I should interview and to see what topics are seeming to, to resonate. And then I'll go generally explore them further. So that's, that is the main approach that I use. It's maybe not the most proactive. Um, my, my content calendar is generally only like planned a few weeks in advance, uh, but then it, it allows me to be very timely um, and go explore the topics that are really interesting at that at that moment. Yeah. Is there some topics you're really interested about, but when you write about it, no one cares? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it happens a lot, actually. Uh, even some of the yeah, some of the it's hard for me sometimes to predict what's going to resonate with uh, readers, which is I mean always a great learning. Uh, a lot of times the, the I I love talking about pricing and packaging, right? That's something that I think is really important. It's really strategic. Uh, it doesn't always land. Like sometimes that's something that ends up being very popular and timely. But a lot of times people are like, oh, that pricing stuff, like you know, that's someone else's job or, you know, we've, we've debated this for a long time. I don't want to get into this again. And so pricing content, I think it's almost like, you know, eating your vegetables. Like, you know, it's important, you know, you should be doing it, but it's not the thing you're going to go to when you're hungry in the middle of the night. 
uh, you're going to go to a candy bar. And so pricing is one of, and I think like churn is actually in that bucket too. Like we'd much rather talk about things like acquisition and conversion than about fixing churn. And in this current environment, churn's really important um, to figure out that I think churn's increased in a lot of a lot of companies in our portfolio and, and outside of the portfolio. But churn's just not as sexy of a topic to read about. Yeah, yeah, no, that resonates. And I'm guilty of uh, being less engaged on these kind of contents too. <laughs> I'll still throw people their vegetables, but uh, I, uh, I'll, yeah, I have a mix of candy in there with it. There is another point I wanted to follow up on. You said uh, OpenView, usually the, you want to be the first destination founders look at when they have uh, a topic they want to solve. Is there some topics you think that founders should not address you with? Well, yeah, in, in those cases, we'll be very clear that we are not the experts. But uh, honestly, like the way our, our mechanism is built is that we're often playing the role of connector. And if we don't have someone that we're connected to in a certain area, we will go find the right person. And so there's really like no topic that I would say a founder shouldn't turn to us to. Uh, but what we're not going to be as helpful on is, I mean, our team is built around expansion. We call it the expansion team. And companies that are at the expansion stage have found product market fit. There's some early signs of a repeatable go-to-market, right? Like you move beyond founder selling uh, and, and are really ready to scale, right? So you know it's, it's starting to work and you just want to put more people into, into it uh, as well as just more resources. And so our motion is really going to be uh, designed to help companies with those kinds of challenges. How do I attract and retain more of the right customers? And how do I attract and retain more of the right talent in my, in my business? What That sounds very broad and it covers a ton of topics, but it doesn't cover everything, right? Like we don't really get into legal advice all of that much on behalf of our portfolio companies or uh, getting into the weeds of sort of accounting best practices or, or contracts with portfolio companies. Uh, don't normally get so much into things like uh, engineering productivity or productiveness or like, you know, do we outsource the certain engineering headcount or not, uh, you know, questions like that end up not being as core to our focus. That's not where we have, we have, we have perspectives, but we're just not, we're not built to have that be as our core function. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to move a little bit into the PLG topic and the PLG world. Um, it's something you've written a lot about. And so when I was preparing the interview, I was thinking, okay, what can I get, uh, from Kai that he hasn't said? So I'm actually going to ask very bluntly, do you have anything you can share uh, about PLG that you never wrote uh, or never put publicly and maybe something that you share off record? <laughs> well, I'm like a pretty open book, so I've probably shared everything at this point. But that's it. There are a couple of things that you probably won't find as much of. Uh, you might find some of it. Is that, frankly, like PLG has become trendy, but it's not right for everyone. And the challenges of moving to a PLG motion are actually like much bigger than people maybe anticipate. Um, it's not launching a freemium product or a free trial and then calling it a day. Like you're looking at realistically 18 months of work and significant investment uh, plus cultural changes across the company. CAC will probably increase in the short term as will R&D investments. 
Uh, it's something where I think that companies, if they can really commit to it um, and they have the right opportunity, they can see great results. But it's, you know, it is a, a long-term sort of challenge. And, uh, and it's something that I would say, if you're looking for something that's going to help you grow faster in the next quarter, your PLG initiative will probably not be that thing. Could you tell us a situation where you advise in the company not to go for PLG or are they the way around actually? When was a surprising moment where PLG worked? If you have any of these. Mm. So, I, well, it's not so black and white. Uh, I guess the, like when I reflect on like PLG and, and how we think about an open view, it's, it's taking things that would normally be done by people or a resource intensive way and, and turning to product based solutions, which can be more scalable and more efficient, right? So we normally think of sales and marketing as the core levers for driving growth. Now, if we think about product and R and D as the core lever for driving growth, like what does that open up for us? And there, that, that way of thinking could apply to acquisition, right? For like product based, like sidecar products, product based SEO, uh, product virality. The product could be driving conversion through self-service, uh, product onboarding, all that stuff. It could also be driving expansion and retention through uh, in-app upsells, being able to drive kind of in-account uh, in virality and expose more people to your product uh, or just create stickiness that uh, so that your customers don't want to want to stop using your product. So there's normally something there that is relevant to just about any company, whether you're like classically PLG or not, you could always be finding ways to automate things that you might be doing in a very resource and manually intensive way and bring products and solutions into that. So there's almost always some sort of like PLG model um, that's, that's accessible, but it's not normally jumping to like, I'm going to look like Slack or I'm going to look like Figma from the get go, because that is what is just very unusual. Uh, I'd say like in terms of PLG that I wouldn't expect, Mango Mint's an interesting example um, in, in our portfolio. It's one of our newer portfolio companies. It's software for salon and spa companies. Uh, so you're, you know, not your like single employee, you know, business, but you're like, Main Street salon that you walk by on, uh, or, or go to yourself that maybe has five or 10 or 15 stylists. That's not a product category that you normally think of as PLG, right? It's something that's like, it's ERP for that, for that business. They're used to really like legacy outdated tech that might even re require like a third party service provider to help them get up and running. And Mango Mint has taken a PLG approach to it. So it's super fascinating for, for my end. And that's actually where, when I look at what, what I get excited about with the PLG movement, it's taking PLG principles and bringing them into these vertical software businesses. Uh, because the vertical SaaS, it's one of the, like, I mean, it's a, a laggard in terms of software adoption in general. But in a vertical SaaS, a lot of times the end users are maybe field-based as opposed to in the office. And so they benefit from easy-to-use products that they can use on the phone or on the go. Uh, there are industries where a lot of the employees are actually in small businesses, and it's not that efficient to go use a sales rep to try to you know, sell into each of these businesses. They're also not like actively seeking out software. 
So the more that you can build something that's kind of bottom up and user focused, easy to adopt, allows you to unlock that bigger opportunity. And with the rise of like FinTech plus software, the market opportunities within vertical software have just gotten much bigger than people maybe initially thought. So PLG is a great wedge to get customers in. And then there's so many sort of products that you can upsell and expand folks into. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You wrote a, you wrote really good pieces of contents uh, about, you know, like what are the kind of requirements to be PLG? And I think something you explained very well is that you can, you need to only take an, a certain amount of boxes to be PLG, but it doesn't have to be always the same, right? So you don't always need a library of templates to be PLG, right? You need to be basically have a self-serve adoption, and then there is, you know, different colors, different ways of being self, self, uh, self-serve, right? Exactly. And, it, and that's where if I like, when I talk to companies that want to implement PLG or want to move towards PLG, they often want to like do something that they can test relatively quickly to see if this is going to work for their business. Uh, and so it's really important to like get that right, what you want to test first. And in my mind, like that you should be mindful of where's it going to go, right? So if this test succeeds, what, what do you build into sort of from there? And also, how do you get results from this test that are going to be valuable, like whether PLG is the right strategy for you or not? And so I, I try to encourage folks to map out the funnel, identify the biggest friction points that they're facing, and think about PLG as a way to, to basically unlock faster growth and less friction based on something they already really care about. And I also encourage them to do things like that are just uh, good practices for any company, but that are great practices for PLG companies. And what I mean by that are things like instrumenting, instrumenting product analytics to get visibility into how people are using your product. Like, sounds simple, but it's there's a lot of... Uh, or adoption of that kind of technology or people still use sort of in-house um, custom solutions around it. And to me, where, where that's so important is even if you don't want to spin up self-serve and freemium and all these things, like that data is still extremely valuable because it'll give you visibility into where you are with accounts. Are you getting adoption of these new features that you're building? How do you drive a better customer experience? It's going to drive retention and expansion. Uh, and it's that visibility into, into something that uh, you would previously, like, it's so important to how you make money as a business, but you would otherwise not have a, have great insights into. And so I guess that's the, that's the other advice is, is do some of that like software building best practices work that uh, will help kind of set a foundation for PLG in the future. It's a common mistake I see in product teams. Like even when you start with anything, an experiment, it's very important to know ahead of time how you're going to measure success. Otherwise, there is there will be no conclusion and no next iteration. And if you already know that you know this is going to be the next step you will take, no matter what's the result, then you know you should probably even jump or skip the test you're doing. And I think it's the same when you when you introduce or try to introduce PLG. I guess you need to be very intentional on where you're going to want to go next and code it out. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, totally. And that's where I, I like to have incremental progress before you jump all the way into like, if you launch, if you launch a freemium product and that's your first move into PLG, all of a sudden sales team hates it because it's taking leads that they would talk to. Uh, 
your product team might not actually know how to build products that are available to use via self-service. And so you might really struggle with self-serve adoption out of the gate. It's going to be hard for your product team to focus too if they're they're getting feature requests from enterprise customers that have real revenue attached to it, or they could work on this experimental product growth stuff. Like they're going to tend to prioritize like where's their, their, their immediate revenue. Uh, and marketing maybe is able to speak to an executive kind of buyer persona and like they know how to reach those folks, but that's not who uses your free premium product. The premium products used by actually end users, product users, not executives. So you need to rethink like your messaging, how you market to folks, like it's a, it's a whole thing. And so that's where I go. All right. Well, that's probably not the best thing to jump to. Um, it might be for some companies, but I tend to start with, Where's there going to be a more immediate impact? And that by working on that thing, it can get us to premium in the future. What are the common ways to, to get started with PLG? So you mentioned a free trial or a free trial product. And uh, it, is, it, is this usually the starting point or do you, do you see other starting points? That's where a lot of people default to starting with PLG because they go, all right, that like, Every PLG company has some sort of freemium or like free trial, try before you buy style experience. And so uh, it, they visibly see that as a sign of PLG and that therefore is like the first thing that people kind of jump to doing. What I like to do if I'm thinking about like steps to PLG, it's to start by having a good visibility into the customer journey uh, and, and where there's the most friction and drop off points. And, and friction and drop off both in terms of like low conversion from step A to step B, but also very resource intensive to get people from step A to step B. Uh, so like to map that out and also instrument visibility into the product where you can understand at a user and customer level, their adoption of, of features and ideally at a time series basis. What do people do first, second, third, and so on? People that do X in their first week are more likely to retain or uh, expand than folks who don't do X in their first week, like really get that visibility. And as when you go through that process, you'll then sort of start to think about really interesting ways that you can leverage PLG strategies. And so an option that's kind of a visible starting point might be starting with a product tour that you can put on the website to give folks a taste of the product before you have a fully premium offering out there. Or going with a free sidecar product, which essentially product built with marketing intent rather than going and building out a self-service product. Um, and that sidecar product is going to be lead gen for your paid product. Like a HubSpot, before they launched really core PLG and premium offerings, they had their website creator where you can put in your URL, they gave you a bunch of feedback on ways to improve your performance, your SEO, a bunch of things. And naturally, the next step would be to buy HubSpot to go improve your uh, your website grade. And so they did that before they had a self-service product or premium. It works even better if you have that kind of way to graduate after the website grader. But that was a product built with marketing intent and built for acquisition purposes. So uh, I guess I encourage folks to just like, broaden the aperture of how they think about PLG for their business. Yeah, makes total sense. And I, and I also think, you know, like people are getting very bored when they see the same things again and again. And I think you, you know, one of the things that startups want to do is to differentiate and 
build unique things and bring unique things to their customers. And I think uh, PLG is one of these things where you, you, you need to be quite creative to, you know, get people excited and, and, and really, you know, to pull people throughout their, you know, the, the funnel and the journey with your product. So, um, I think, I think that example from HubSpot was great. Um, and it's something also I've seen you, you wrote about this kind of like free content to, you know, to capture people's first intention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think these are these can be really interesting opportunities, especially if you look at any enterprise focused company. They tend to have a pretty big marketing budget that's going towards things like trade shows uh, or sponsoring like Gartner and Forrester white papers or DEI studies, whatever it is. If you could think about like how much you spend on some of those campaigns. And think about instead, like what kinds of ways could you add value to your target audience in a way that would get them interested in your paid product? Like that kind of reframing can help open up like the opportunities around how to uh, how to kind of go to market in a more PLG first way. Uh, but I, I will say, like one thing I. Uh, Another piece of advice or something that I don't write as much about, but I talk to folks a lot about, PLG can seem like it's all about the product and it's about, you know, self-service products, you know, easy to use products, um, that kind of like conversation. But PLG is actually kind of as much work on the marketing side and how you acquire users as it is on the product side in my mind. Because you have to switch the mentality from executive to end user, and your cap uh, that you uh, that you have to essentially uh, uh, have to support user acquisition, your cap goes way down, and so you have to find extremely scalable ways of making your product discoverable by users when they need it, uh, and it can be an unlock for folks of like how to ten x or hundred x uh, their user acquisition, but. If you just build a great self-serve product and you're not changing any of your marketing, that PLG motion is going to fail, right? Um, and, and vice versa. And I think that the the marketing side of PLG is something that maybe gets uh, underexplored or it's like a, uh, even more important to get right than folks realize. Whenever a company says we're a platform, it's probably not product-led. <laughs> As an example, uh, because users care about something that's like easy to grok. It's, you know, you're normally counter positioning against like what they hate or what they're, what they're annoyed about or like what's in their mind um, as sort of this enemy that you're counter positioned against and compared. And so you're able to help sort of solve this problem that a lot of people face. And you're only kind of starting with that small wedge and then you expand into a lot more from there. But, uh, it's an act of simple, simplifying instead of being like, we're the platform to do everything that you might ever want. Like that's still going to be your enterprise message, but that doesn't get an end user to say, Oh, this platform can do everything. I'm going to click here to get started. Like you just don't, you don't do that. You get started because you're like, they get me. I could like, this is really annoying. And this product helps me solve it. It'll help me solve it quickly. And it looks like, you know, based on these screenshots or based on testimonials or other things like this is really slick and like would be easy to use. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates a lot. Um, I think recently the one company that we really love with my co-founder is Intercom. We used to work there and recently 
the uh, former CEO came back and the website changed and it's like, now it's the product again. And they completely dropped the, all the platform, you know, words. And they're really trying to be like, <laughs> product back to their DNA. And, uh, but like for years it was like, yeah, we're selling through the platform. You can use us and you can do everything. And I think it's very interesting to see also this back and forth and to see that it's not set in stone, but you can actually, you know, sell the platform for three years. And then the next year you just put again, the product and literally explain what the features uh, do. Well, I see that happens a lot with PLG companies or has happened, right? Where you become a started off very PLG, like intercom. They realized they're starting to sell larger and larger deals. They were getting pulled. Maybe their their small customers graduated in enterprise. That larger larger enterprise revenue became a much bigger portion of their revenue, and so built out a big sales team to support it. Changed their messaging to support it. Like that was the focus of their product strategy. But then, like that bottom up adoption started to dry up, right? They stopped acquiring as many new users. Those new users that started off small weren't graduating into bigger companies that became customers. And so they were just essentially good at taking that same pool of folks and, and getting them to pay more and more, but without brought, like basically creating a bigger pool. And so I ha- I'm, I'm now seeing folks going back to like, all right, we've got to go back to our PLG roots. Uh, and so... What I'm excited about is this shift towards what is being called product-led sales. Uh, it is like the newest buzzword within PLG. And that's the big unlock for me of how do we actually pair PLG and sales in a way that's actually complementary and improves the customer experience as opposed to like it being an either-or decision. Yeah, no, I, I agree on this one. I think uh, it's, it's not the only way and it should not be the only way, especially when you you go up market. Yeah, and, I've, and even mature sort of big PLG companies have actually said like, it's difficult for us to describe ourselves as a PLG company because internally we've got all these other functions, right? We've got sales, we've got marketing, we've got legal, we've got XYZ. They don't see themselves in that. They think of it as like product-led means the product team and or like R&D is the lifeblood of the company. And so I do think this like product-led blank is a is sort of a solve for bringing other people into the fold. Uh, but I also like even just calling it PLG instead of product-led growth. It's almost like, just let's focus on the acronym rather than get too bogged down by, uh, you know, folks thinking of this as like only product-centric. 100%. I have one last question for you. We've been together for like, yeah, almost 40 minutes now, which is a bit longer than the traditional format, but I really got uh, dragged into the conversation. So my, my last question is, do you think sometime product-led can be a positioning? So you talked about, you talked about, you know, how marketing should, um, you know, take the motion and, and, and kind of like work it out or reposition, whatever. There are some companies out there that it feels are positioning as product-led, but they're not. And the one that I'm really excited about, and I know you wrote about it, is Retool. From the outside, they really look like product-led, but from conversations I've had with people there, it seems that they're not really. So um, what's your take on this you know, positioning versus actual uh, motion inside the company? Yeah, well... And it, it is interesting. I, I did feature Retool in a piece recently, and they even said firsthand, like, 
most companies maybe start PLG and then they move into more sales and enterprise. Their pivot was the opposite. So they started more sales and enterprise focused and have been moving more PLG. And so a lot of the, um, a lot of what's differentiated them from others on the market has been things like the enterprise grade capabilities, right? Like you can self host retool rather than uh, host via SaaS. And so that's something that appeals to someone that's maybe security conscious and so on. Uh, and so I think that with, uh, with folks like that, there's, there's an opportunity to kind of shift towards more of a PLG posturing and, and positioning if you really believe that's going to be the starting point of how folks experience the product and, and see value. And I think that there's, uh, there's a, the PLG sort of world is a, is a big enough tech, right? Like I, I'm not overly worried about uh, examples like this because if the company has an ability for you to get started for free, see value via self-service um, and they kind of speak to that value proposition via the website and their messaging, like, I, to me, that's they're they're walking the walk. They might not have a hundred percent of their purchases via self service, but like they're still very much a PLG oriented company, and so I'm, I'm I'm okay with that positioning. Now, what I will say, a pet peeve of mine is when people say "get started for free" or "try now," and then you click on it and it's a ten field form to then contact a sales rep. <laughs> that is my that is my. Um, biggest pet peeve around the PLG movement. Yeah. I think this, this last example shows a, a problem within the organization where probably the marketing team wanted to be PLG, but the product team didn't really have the time or the resources are, didn't make, you know, the same decision. I've seen that a few times too. That's fun. Exactly. Or marketing was like, well, this, this call that action had a better click through rate. It's like, well, it's because people thought it, <laughs> that they could actually get started for free. That's hilarious. Yeah. I've seen this one so many times doing A-B tests in the, in my previous life as a product manager, like you would increase the click-through rate of the first step, but then you would actually decrease the click-through rate of the last step. So all in all, you have exactly the same conversion rate, but, uh, but you just, you know, keep, you know, playing around with CTAs. It's, it's oh yeah. I see that all the time. That actually happens a lot when people embed like social logins, like sign up with your Google account or Facebook or GitHub. A lot of times that increases your conversion rate to sign up, but then doesn't do anything else. Actually was working with one of our portfolio companies around their activation moment in the product. And we added this idea of like a test event. Uh, and that, got so many more people to the activation moment because they were doing the event. But uh, we actually found that hurt overall downstream activities like conversion and retention because it distracted folks from setting up, setting it up themselves. And they just sort of tested it out instead, which is more like kicking the tires versus doing the work. Um, and so it's, there's, there can be a lot of like fun challenges with, with data, data interpretation. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, Kyle, thank you so much. Uh, we reached the the end of the podcast. Where where can people find you to online to you know com- continue the discussion? I'm very easy to find. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I put out um, thoughts, some half baked, some fully baked, uh, two or three times a week, and then on my newsletter, Growth on Hinge. Awesome! Really pleasure to have you here. I'll make sure to add the, the links you mentioned in the description. 
And thanks again for joining. Thanks, Enzo. Yeah, well, and it, it is interesting. I, I did feature Retool in a piece recently, and they even said firsthand, like, most companies maybe start PLG and then they move into more sales and enterprise. Their pivot was the opposite. So they started more sales and enterprise focus and have been moving more PLG. And so a lot of the, uh, a lot of what's differentiated them from others on the market has been things like the enterprise grade capabilities, right? Like you can self host retool rather than uh, host via SaaS. And so that's something that appeals to someone that's maybe security conscious and so on. Uh, and so I think that with, uh, with folks like that, there's, there's an opportunity to kind of shift towards more of a PLG posturing and, and positioning. If you really believe that's going to be the starting point of how folks experience the product and see, and see value. And I think that there's, uh, there's a, the PLG sort of world is a, is a big enough tent, right? Like I, I'm not overly worried about, um, examples like this because if the company has an ability for you to get started for free, see value via self-service, um, and they kind of speak to that value proposition via the website and their messaging, like I, to me, that's they're, they're walking the walk. They might not have a hundred percent of their purchases via self-service, but like, they're still very much a PLG oriented company. And so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that positioning. Now, what I will say that pet peeve of mine is when people say, get started for free or try now, and then you click on it and it's a 10 field form to then contact a sales rep. <laughs> that is my, that is my, um, biggest pet peeve around the PLG movement. Yeah. I think this, this last example shows a, a problem within the organization where Probably the marketing team wanted to be PLG, but the product team didn't really have the time or the resources or didn't make, you know, the same decision. I've seen that a few times too. That's fun. Exactly. Or marketing was like, well, this, this call to action had a better click through rate. It's like, well, it's because people thought it <laughs> that they could actually get started for free. That's hilarious. Yeah. I've seen this one so many times doing A-B test in the, in my previous life as a product manager. Like you would increase the click-through rate of the first step, but then you would actually decrease the click-through rate of the last step. So all in all, you have exactly the same conversion rate, but, uh, but you just, you know, keep, you know, playing around with CTAs. It's, it's, oh yeah. I see that all the time. That actually happens a lot when people embed like social logins, like sign up with your Google account or Facebook or GitHub. A lot of times that increases your conversion rate to sign up, but then doesn't do anything else. Actually, was working with one of our portfolio companies around their activation moment in the product, and we added this idea of like a test event, uh, and that got so many more people to the activation moment because they were doing the event. But uh, we actually found that hurt overall downstream activities like conversion and retention because it distracted folks from setting up setting it up themselves. And they just sort of tested it out instead, which is more like kicking the tires versus doing the work. Um, and so it's, there's, there can be a lot of like fun challenges with, with data, data interpretation. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, Kyle, thank you so much. Uh, we reached the, the end of the podcast. Where, where can people find you to online to, you know, continue the discussion? 
I'm very easy to find. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I put out um, thoughts, some half-baked, some fully baked, uh, two or three times a week. And then on my newsletter, Growth on Hinge. Awesome. Truly pleasure to have you here. I'll make sure to add the, the links you mentioned in the description. And thanks again for joining. Thanks, Enzo. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye.